This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. Being able to tell these stories in the audio form has been a real boon for us, and we're really pleased with that. Our weekly journey with you has reached a milestone. It just gives exposure to good reporting that ought to exist. Reaching a milestone program, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Some say journalists these days engage in too much self-congratulatory promotion, and they're probably right. But earlier this year, 30 weeks ago to be exact, we marked the 200th program in this series. We've been with you each week since July 2014. In this day and age, that's no small accomplishment for a program produced by a nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism organization. And here we are at number 230. We thought it would be appropriate on this Thanksgiving weekend, as we give thanks to you for helping us get to this point, to not just pick a few highlights here and there. After all, this program is focused on in-depth reporting and interviews. This past April, the Iowa Broadcast News Association presented this program with no fewer than eight awards. We're judged next to the largest commercial and public radio newsrooms in the state and are appreciative of and humbled by the recognition. Two of the awards were for first place, and it is segments from those programs we choose to share with you to mark our program milestone. One important way to ensure food security in the United States is to keep farmland ownership from going into foreign hands. That doesn't always happen. We examined why and how Iowa law prohibits foreign farmland ownership in program number 160 in our series, which originally aired July 21, 2017. It received first place in the farm and agribusiness category in the recent IBNA awards. Some time ago, reporters at the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting got to wondering how much foreign investment was going into U.S. farmland. Based in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, the nonprofit news organization's curiosity was driven by deals like one in 2013, in which a Chinese firm bought 146,000 acres of farmland across the United States in a $4.7 billion purchase of pork producer Smithfield Foods. Here's Jonathan Henniger, a Midwest Center reporter who co-wrote the eventual story. We found that foreign investment in U.S. agriculture land, uh, cropland, timberland, um, has increased tremendously over the past 10 years. So from 2004 to 2014, uh, the total amount of land owned by foreign companies or foreign people doubled uh, in the United States. And that's, it makes up only 2% of all farmland, but that totals um, about $42 billion worth of farmland. The Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting compiled and analyzed data from 1900 to 2014. It obtained the information under the Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. Henninger and other reporters at the center found strong indicators of growing interest in farmland by foreign interest. The appeal, investment opportunity. A lot of uh, institutional investors have started to invest, especially in timberland, um, basically finding that they can 
they can grow the trees, they can sell the timber, and then the whole time the land value is increasing. So a lot of pension funds, a lot of universities are investing in um, farmland and timberland. But what about Iowa? Its main crop is not timberland. Yet some property from the state shows up in the USDA database. A lot of acquisitions happened before Iowa law was changed a few decades back to strengthen the ban on farmland ownership by non-resident aliens. That change in Iowa law, since amended, makes Iowa one of a handful of states that prohibit foreign ownership of farmland. Exceptions exist, a foreign bank obtaining land to settle a debt, the chance to conduct crop research, or an inheritance, for example, at least for a while before the land has to be sold. And farmland held by foreign interests before July 1, 1979, is allowed to remain in foreign hands. Neil Hamilton, a professor of law at Drake University and an expert on Iowa's ag land laws, once wrote an opinion when working with the Iowa Attorney General's office that said Iowa's foreign ownership ban is constitutional. That opinion, he noted as he flipped through the Iowa Code and State Constitution in a conference room at Drake's Law School, has not been challenged in court. The Iowa Constitution, when it was passed back in the 1850s, as you can imagine, most Iowans, in fact, were native-born because they were recent immigrants, right? They're people coming from Scandinavia, and the Iowa Constitution protects the rights of anyone who's a resident in Iowa to buy land. And so there's a difference between being a resident in Iowa, right, and being a non-resident alien for immigration purposes. I mean, you could be a resident in Iowa on a student visa, right, that you got from the federal government, so you're, quote, here physically, but for Iowa constitutional purposes, you're not a residence that gives you the right to buy land while you're here, right? Your status in the country is a function of your foreign, of your federal immigration status. The bottom line, Hamilton said, is that a rational basis exists for Iowa's ban in terms of national security, preventing exploitation of the land, concerns about absentee owners, and other reasons. And Iowa, not the federal government, controls who can own land within its borders. Even so, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack made that food security argument when the Iowa Watch Connection Chef Stein caught up with him recently. Well, you know, obviously uh, there are some restrictions in individual states in terms of who can own farmland and what kind of entities can own farmland. So oftentimes it's more of a state issue than it is a federal issue. Uh, I think all things being equal, we'd prefer to have ownership of land in the hands of, uh, of people from this country. Um, and the reason for it is simple. Uh, I have always talked about the fact that America is a food secure nation, that we have the capacity and capability with our farmland and our great farmers to be able to produce all the farm <clears throat> products that we need to survive, uh, that we can actually produce everything we need to feed our people can be grown and raised in the U.S. Now, that's not true in a lot of countries. Uh, China, for example, is unable to meet its food needs. It has to import food. And so it's less secure because of that. Well, the Chinese recognize that. And so what they're trying to do now is they're trying to buy up farmland so that they have access and control to enough land to be able to feed their people. Um, and I think we need to be, you know, keep keeping a wary eye on that because we want to maintain our capacity 
uh, to feed ourselves. We want to maintain that security that we have, our food security and national security that we have, that advantage that we have. Again, Drake University's Neil Hamilton. You know, oftentimes when you think of non-resident aliens, you think about, okay, well, there's, you know, Uncle Gustav, right? I mean, you think of a, a living, breathing person. But you also have the issue of foreign businesses, right? Because the statute just doesn't talk about acquisition by individuals. You know, it talks about acquisition by business entities. So, in fact, you know, it describes a foreign business as meaning a corporation incorporated into the laws of a foreign country or a business entity, whether or not incorporated, let's say a partnership, in which a majority interest is owned directly or indirectly by non-resident aliens. Okay, well, we have a limited liability company and we're all non-resident aliens, right? We aren't buying it in our own name. Instead, we're buying it in the name of Jimmy Jones Farms, right, LLC. It's still treated as a foreign business and it's subject to these restrictions. One thing worth noting as it pertains to Iowa, the state has attracted a lot of attention for its wind energy opportunities. American companies have entered into partnerships with foreign companies to gain easements on farmland for windmills. Iowa Watch research aided by the USDA database the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting provided shows involvement in Iowa's wind energy efforts by NL Green Power, a subsidiary of NL North America, which is part of the larger NL Green Power SPA of Rome, Italy. The partnerships have existed in Audubon, Powashik, and Washington counties, for example. Although the proposed billion-dollar wind farm idea for Washington County proposed back in 2009 through the Kansas-based firm Trade Wind Energy did not materialize. Hamilton notes that foreign interest in those deals are part of easement agreements instead of farmland ownership or leases, and that you could argue that capturing wind energy is not an agricultural product. In other words, the arrangements fit Iowa law. The Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting's Jonathan Hedinger says wind farms turn up in a lot of states. A lot of the big wind farm, wind turbine companies are foreign-owned. So there's um, ones from Iberdola, which is in Spain. There's Enel, which is in Italy. There's one in Portugal, one in France. And they've really invested heavily in the United States in wind energy. A topic for another report at a different time. I'm Lyle Muller for the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm joined now by Lyle Muller, executive director and editor of Iowa Watch. Well, when you and I first started talking about a radio program in 2013, did you think that five years later from the first time we talked, four years after it went on the air, we would still be producing journalism of this type? I'd have to tell you that, no, I didn't see it coming. I'm very glad and appreciative if you'll recall, and this is for our listeners to know, this was going to start as a 13-week experiment funded with money from the Knight Foundation and an organization called the Institute for Nonprofit News. And somehow we were able to continue it, and we had great sponsorship, and it could not have existed without sponsorship that we've had over the last few years. So to hit 200 stories, to me, is a really nice feeling. It's a great accomplishment, and thank you, Jeff, for being part of it. Well, you're very kind to say that, but the stations that carry this program have, to a very large degree, nothing in common with one another, 
other than the fact that they carry this program. They're not all members of the same corporate conglomerate. They're not all small stations. They're not all large stations. The one thing they have in common is they air this program, but it's part of their broader commitment to community service, and so many of these affiliates do such a great job on the local level, they received their own IVNA awards this past weekend as well. So a good home and a good audience base. That's something that I'm able to tell a lot of people, and I love telling them that, is that the stations who are airing the Iowa Watch Connection are community-based. They care about news and information, and some of these stations are some real powerhouses. They certainly are legacy stations in Iowa, stations that people pay attention to when they want local news and information. I was talking to a news director from one of the stations over the weekend at the Iowa Broadcast News Association who was talking about how this is just a good opportunity for his station to have an in-depth report about a statewide issue that otherwise wouldn't be available to them. So we're glad that we're able to fill that service. Lyle Muller, thanks. And when we come back, a report Lyle himself prepared that took top honors in the always competitive general reporting category of the recent state broadcasting awards. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. I'm Taylor Odekirk. PR director at the nonprofit, nonpartisan producer of this program, Iowa Watch. Right now, Iowa Watch is part of an exciting funding opportunity through Newsmatch, a national campaign to support nonprofit journalism. Newsmatch will match every dollar you donate to Iowa Watch so that quality journalism like the Iowa Watch connection can continue. Your $25 becomes $50 in support of in depth, fact based journalism. It's that easy. Please consider supporting this work by going to the donate button at the top of iowawatch.org. That web address again is iowawatch.org. And thank you for listening to our program. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. A state plan shows demand for shipping by train in Iowa increasing rapidly by 2040, but is the state ready? We examined the topic in program number 170 in our series, which originally aired September 29, 2017. It received first place in the general reporting category in the Iowa Broadcast News Association Annual Awards which were handed out in April in Cedar Rapids. Open the 2017 Iowa State Rail Plan, and you'll get a history lesson on how railroads have been in Iowa since 1855, how mainline railroad mileage peaked at 10,018 miles in 1914, how trains led to economic growth, especially in the state's cities. The state has 3,851 railroad route miles now, the plan reports. 18 railroads and two non-operating railroad owners own the tracks. And this might surprise you, but they also own some of those hiking trails you use that were built on abandoned rail lines. They could reinstall the rail and run trains there again if that ever became necessary. The term is rail banking. Trails being rail banked 
include the Cedar Valley Nature Trail connecting Hiawatha with Waterloo, the Heart of Iowa Nature Trail between Slater and Rhodes, the 64-mile-long Wabash Trace Nature Trail between Council Bluffs and Blanchard, and that 90-mile-long Raccoon River Valley Trail connecting several towns in central Iowa. Well, in general, I think Iowa has a good capacity already infrastructure-wise to, to handle the existing business and what's proposed for the future. That's Brian Buchanan, Manager of Corporate Development at Canadian National Railways. Canadian National Trains run on 608 miles of Iowa track, all of it owned by the company except for three miles it has rights to use. Although there are specific pinch points that we all have along our railroad that need to be addressed. For instance, on our railroad, the Canadian National, we have a a tunnel at East Dubuque that has height restrictions. It restricts the height of the rail cars that we can move in and out of Iowa on our rail line. So for us to take advantage of, say, double-stack intermodal tech, uh, train technology that is more efficient than, than handling the intermodal boxes stacked singly, it's more efficient to double-stack them then they only take up half the amount of length in a train. At present, we can't handle those through the tunnel in East Dubuque because the roof of the tunnel isn't high enough. So whereas our railroad, once we get into Iowa, has adequate capacity for the foreseeable future to handle any growth needs, we do have this specific pinch point that we need to address. That state transportation plan includes a prediction that Iowa will need to address a large increase in rail freight needs by the year 2040. Outbound rail freight tonnage will grow 35% from 2013 to 2040, the report predicts. Inbound tonnage by 44%. Add interstate rail movement and you have a total predicted growth of 52%, the report states. Canadian National operates on an international scale, but Iowa Interstate Railroad operates on a statewide scale. Andy Laurent, the business development director there, says the firm assesses its rail needs on a case-by-case basis. For example, it serves an ethanol plant in Atlantic, Iowa that received a controversial $4.5 million tax break to locate in that southwest Iowa community. You know, really from a big-picture standpoint, most of our railroads have adequate capacity to deal with it. But, you know, we've got some government mandates, positive train control, um, things of that nature that we're all planning for, having to figure out how we're going to implement on our railroads. Um, on our capacity specifically, I think we're, we're looking at this on a project-by-project basis. Um, we've got a new ethanol plant that's being located in Atlantic, Iowa. We're doing some capacity improvements there. Operationally, we're also changing to be able to meet those, the need of that new customer. Um, you know, big picture, we're set for the future. When, when additional business comes to our railroad, I think we're ready for it. As a Class two railroad, we're fairly nimble. We can make those changes. Um, and financially, we're in, we're in pretty good shape. So I think for the future, our railroad's good. I think Iowa's general railroad infrastructure system is in good shape as well. Uh, we all do a lot of interconnectedness. Um, most of our carloads that we move start or end on another railroad. Um, we depend on our other railroads, and I think their infrastructure um, is in pretty good shape as well. So I think we're, the state is in pretty good shape moving forward. Buchanan and Laurent shared their ideas at a September 2017 Iowa Ideas Conference 
that the Gazette newspaper hosted. Disclosure, the Gazette is a financial supporter for Iowa Watch. Terms of the agreement, though, give Iowa Watch sole control over what news stories it covers and how. The conference was in downtown Cedar Rapids, a hub for rail freight with plants like the iconic Quaker Oats facility providing the goods. Listen closely as Jeff Woods, manager of marketing and business development at Alliant Energy Transportation, speaks at the conference. You'll hear, as though on cue, another downtown train. There's also a lot coming in that will use the railroad's economy of scale, let's just say plastics moving from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, comes into Iowa, comes to somewhere on one of our railroads, uh, then is transferred into a truck to move to a business location that isn't on rail somewhere else. Iowa assists the rail industry in several ways, with a railroad revolving loan and grant program, for example, or by providing state funds for programs that include railroad crossing safety and surface repair, also intermodal facilities. Jeff Woods at Aligned Energy Transportation says rail companies are preparing for the state's future shipping needs, but you can expect the state to be part of that future, too. Well, I think we've been addressing it the last 10 years through substantial investments in our locomotive fleet and our rail infrastructure. We've built a lot of additional track to, and replaced a lot of existing track just to keep up with the customer base that we have today. And then as we get new customers that want to come online, we look at it on a case-by-case basis predicated on the business decision. I do think going forward, given the significant capacity increase uh, that the state's projecting, there are opportunities for the railroads and really all the transportation providers, the trucking lines, the barge lines, to interface more in terms of where are their locations where there's significant public benefit, but maybe the business case needs a little bit of assistance to get it off the ground in terms of interfacing the various modes between each other. I'm Lyle Muller, for the Iowa Watch Connection. And that brings us to the close of this week's program, the 230th in the series. We appreciate the underwriters and grantors who have funded the journalism heard here each week. We thank the 20 radio stations which currently air the Iowa Watch Connection, many of which have been with us since the very beginning. Most of all, of course, our thanks to you for listening, for commenting, and for caring about the important topics of our times. We're back again next week at this same time. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.